We're going to read Luke 16, 1 through 15 today. Let's read it. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I want to begin first by introducing myself. I'm Steve, and I'm the associate pastor here at Regen. Advent is over, and so we begin to turn our attention to the new year and what lies ahead. On January 10th, Pastor Albert will be back, and he'll be starting our new book series, which is going to be in the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther. But for these two weeks in between then, we're going to return to our little on-again, off-again series in the book of Luke. We've been looking at Luke's gospel in a couple different places over the course of the last fall. And we haven't been doing this in our typical whole book, verse by verse sort of format. We've been looking at a particular part of Luke's gospel. A couple things that we've learned so far, just as a way to review and get us into this before we really get started. We've seen that Luke structures his gospel into three movements, and each movement is tied to a different geographical location. Part one, the first movement, takes place primarily in Galilee, where Jesus is raised and begins his public ministry. And then the end, part three, the final movement of the book, takes place in and around the city of Jerusalem. Jesus' last days and hours, his trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, all take place in and around Jerusalem. What we've been focusing on is this middle part, in Luke 9, 51, we read that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and there's this determined sense of his destiny, and yet it takes him 10 chapters to get there. And so from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 19, Jesus is sort of meandering his way towards Jerusalem. And during this time, he's primarily in the area, the country of Samaria. And we've learned that Samaria is this unfriendly and at times even hostile territory and what's fascinating is how Jesus handles this handles being in this unfriendly territory we've seen that he uses stories to communicate 
tells parables. And there are 10 parables in Luke's gospel that are totally unique to Luke's telling of the Jesus story. They don't show up in any of the other gospel stories. So we've been looking at those 10 parables and what each of them has to say. And there's, of course, a ton there. But we're also looking at how Jesus communicates. Most would agree that our culture is similar to Samaria in that it's not very friendly, right? Not congenial to the gospel. But the template that we get from leadership, whether that's political leadership, activist leadership, even at times church leadership, is this. When faced with adversity, when faced with opposition, you sort of crank the volume up, right? You get louder. If you've been following any of our political stuff over the last couple of weeks and months, you know this to be true. But Jesus models a very different way. When faced with opposition, he actually gets quieter and he tells stories. He doesn't buy more airtime or do some crazy publicity stunt. So we've been looking at these stories and we've seen that some of these stories are beautiful and then some of them are a little weird, like the one that we're looking at today. So our question today is, what exactly is Jesus saying here in Luke chapter 16? Is he really saying, use money to make friends and influence people? What is up with that? Many people have had a hard time with this particular text. Rudolf Bultmann, who's considered to be one of the greatest scholars, biblical commentators of the 20th century, said this about this parable. He said, it is incomprehensible. So... We're going to have some fun this morning. <laughs> Let's begin by praying together, so bow your heads with me. Father, we are so grateful for the Advent season that we've just moved through and culminated in our celebration on Friday. Thank you for this community and for all the different ways that people contributed to making this Advent season so rich and fun for all of us. Thank you for the truth of Christmas, that you came to earth in the form of a baby, in the form of Jesus to live and walk among us and to one day give your life as a sacrifice for us that we may have relationship with you, that we may have life abundantly here and into the future. And God, now turn our attention to what lies ahead, to this funny, odd parable that we're looking at this morning. Make it simple for us. Teach us something new and fresh today. Speak to us through your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's get right to it. Luke 16, verse 1. If you still have your Bible open, take a look at that. The story begins like this. Jesus is with his disciples, and he tells them, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So the first character that we're introduced to in this story is this rich man. He is a guy who owns property and hires someone to look after his property. This is a fairly typical arrangement for the Middle East, first century Palestine. A wealthy person, a nobleman, would own a property or properties. Usually there would be peasants that lived on these properties, and they would hire one of them or more of them to look after what was going on there, to manage what was happening. In particular, that meant collecting the rent and the tribute that other peasants owed to the rich man for the use of the land, whether that was for farming or grazing animals or whatever. So this rich man has a manager, and this particular manager we learn in verse 1 has been wasting his possessions. This is the equivalent of using the company credit card to buy yourself a flat screen TV. So the rich man is 
obviously not cool with that. And so he calls this guy in to have a conversation. Here's how it goes. Verse 2, he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, this would have been a surprising twist in this story. Those who are listening to this for the first time, when they hear that the manager is being called in to give an account to the master, would have been like, ooh, he's going to get it. Only to discover that he's in some ways let off the hook, right? So let's look at what happens here. The master does fire his manager. There is definitely repercussions for his decision, but notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't send his dishonest manager to jail. He doesn't require him to pay back some huge fine or pay back what he had taken. All he asks is that the manager turn in the books, essentially hand in your receipts. I want to see how you've been spending my money. This would have been a surprising twist in this story. Verse 3, how does the manager respond? The manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Now, this parable in most of your Bibles is probably titled the parable of the dishonest manager. And certainly what he has done and what he is about to do qualifies as dishonest. But what he does here in this moment in verse 3 is display a great deal of honesty. A lot of us, hopefully, are not going to cook the books or steal from our company or embezzle money. But very few of us display this level of honesty and candor about our life situation. A lot of us live with the story about our lives that's a couple notches rosier than it really is, right? We say things like, I'm not in that much debt. I'm not that far behind at work. I'm not slacking around home that much. And then we do this too, right? I'm doing way more than that guy. <laughs> I'm way better off than that person. Now, if we're not doing that comparison kind of thing, we do the someday thing, right? Where we say, someday I'll get around to that. Someday I'll start working out. I'll start budgeting. I'll start reading my Bible again. I'll start that project. I'll have that conversation someday, someday, someday. And in many ways, someday is this very deadly word because it tricks us into thinking that we're actually doing something about our situation. The dishonest manager, though, in this moment, he doesn't compare himself to other people's situations. He does not get sucked into, ah, oh, someday I'll figure out what to do about this situation I've created for myself. No, he takes this very honest, very realistic assessment of his current reality. I don't have a job. I don't want to dig and I don't want to beg. So what am I going to do? He comes up with a plan and then he gets after it. And it's an interesting plan to say the least. Verse 4, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. We'll look at what he actually does here in just a moment. But first, the manager takes a calculated risk here. This risk is designed to soften the blow of losing his job. Again, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't burn the receipts. He doesn't return the TV, so to speak. He doesn't cover his tracks. Instead, he gambles on generosity. So he brings in all these people who, by the way, don't yet know that he's been fired. And he says, what's your bill? Let me see how much you owe. You owe 100? Let's change that to a five. Five zero. You owe 50? Who's next? 100? Change that one to a two. 
A two to a one. There we go. <laughs> anyway, he gets them all in very quickly, changes the numbers, and basically gives them a discount. His gamble is twofold. First, he bets that when he's done, when all these folks finally find out that he has actually been fired, that they'll have his back. They'll let him sleep on their couch. They'll hook him up. Second, he bets that his boss, who has already demonstrated a fairly high level of generosity, will not want to risk losing face, will not want to risk looking like a jerk by going back to all these other peasants and demanding the original payment. It's a pretty ingenious scheme, actually. And here's what's crazy about it. It works. At least from what we're told, it works. The final twist in this story is that the rich man, in so many words, says, well played, well played, and sends the guy on his way. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, here comes the part that I think is confusing to a lot of us. Jesus goes on to say, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. I think this is helpful. Now, here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so that you'll live, really live, and this is the key part, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. Now we'll talk about the manager a bit more here in just a moment, but first I want to pause and draw a conclusion from this story, and it has to do with the rich man. Because the rich man represents God in this story, and many of Jesus' parables, in fact almost all of them, are trying to give us an insight into God's character. So here are two aspects of the rich man's character, and therefore God's character, that are revealed in this story. First, this is a master who expects obedience. He entrusts something to this manager and expects him to do the right thing. He does not want him to waste this. And so when it is wasted, he passes judgment on his dishonest manager. He does fire him. Again, there is a negative repercussion for the manager's indiscretion, but, but he's also a master who displays a surprising amount of mercy and generosity and directs it to someone who doesn't deserve it. Again, the master could have had his manager jailed, could have placed such a large fine on him that he was essentially a slave for the rest of his life. He could have even had him killed. But he doesn't do any of those things. A lot of us, myself included, we struggle with this dual concept of God, right? God is angry and judgmental, or God is good and gracious. But God, like the master in this story, is both righteous and gracious. He holds us accountable, and he forgives us. 
even when, especially when, we don't deserve it. Now, back to the question of shrewdness and using wealth for eternal gains. What is Jesus saying here? Well, to help answer that, I think we need to continue to read on the commentary that Jesus provides after this. I think sheds a lot of light onto this parable. So look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Faithfulness is a quality that is in short supply in our world today. We tend to be much more interested in what is happening right now, what is new, what is flashy. Jesus, far more interested in the bigger picture, in the long haul, in faithfulness. I ran into this a lot when I worked with college students. At least with the students that I worked with, there was this thing that happened towards the end of their sophomore, beginning of junior year, where they'd taken just enough classes to be dangerous. You know what I mean? And so they're kind of like, I don't need to go to school anymore. I know what to do. Like, let me out there. I can solve these problems. And on the one hand, you really admire their passion and their enthusiasm to want to make an impact and change the world. But they were missing a really important truth. Yes, college is about getting a degree and a piece of paper and all that, but it's also about putting in the time. It's about demonstrating a level of faithfulness, being able to set a goal and then see it through to completion. Certainly, this is not the only way to do this, but proving your faithfulness during those four years of school sets you up to be faithful later on when the stakes are much higher, when you are in a real job, when you are managing people, managing a budget, when you are married, when you are a parent. And speaking of parenting, I see this with my kids too. My daughter is three years old and extremely independent. She wants to do everything by herself. Whether it's brushing her teeth, choosing her clothes, pouring herself a glass of water, there's always this constant, Daddy, I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it. So as a parent, you have to try to strike this balance between freedom and restriction. On the one hand, you want her to try stuff out and do things and figure out how to take care of herself and ultimately succeed. But you also don't let a three-year-old do everything because there are some things that she's just not ready for yet. Verse 11, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? we got to talk about money because Jesus spends a lot of time talking about money in this passage. And there are a few things that reveal our character more clearly than how we handle money. I think there is one big misconception, though, about how this works. A lot of us internalize, whether it's from this text or other places in Scripture, we internalize this idea that if we're just good enough, we do all the right things, we follow the rules, God will bless us. In particular, God will bless us financially. But here's the thing. This may sound a little scandalous at first, but hang with me for a moment. God is not looking for good behavior. Good behavior is important. Don't get me wrong. God is much more interested in faithfulness. This should be abundantly clear from the story that we looked at. God is much more interested than faithfulness than good behavior. Again, my daughter, three years old, would love to do everything by herself. If she had a list of things that she would love to do that we don't yet allow her to do, at the top of that list would be prep and cook dinner and drive our car. <laughs> now, we don't let her do those things. 
But here's the thing. We don't withhold those from her because of bad behavior. It's not a punishment to withhold those things from her. We also don't withhold them from her to manipulate her to good behavior, at least not yet. (laughs) We withhold them from her because developmentally she is not ready for them. She's not ready for sharp knives and the gas range and the keys to the car. Now here's the thing. God does not make us jump through hoops. But he will protect us from ourselves. And the truth is, some of us are not ready yet for the keys to the car, so to speak. We need to put in a little more time. We need to do the work. We need to grow up. We need to demonstrate some faithfulness. And when the time is right, we'll get a chance to drive. Now, back to money. Again, few things reveal our character, reveal our faithfulness more clearly than money. Jesus hones in on this in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. A couple ways we end up serving money more than God. Some of us, we spend and we spend and we spend, and then we have to earn and earn and earn so that we can spend and spend and spend. And we end up in this vicious cycle. Others of us, we count and we hoard and we keep track of every cent, and our budget sheet becomes the Lord of our lives. Quick side note, I got to lead people through Financial Peace University this last fall. Budgets are good. Okay, I'm not saying budgets are bad. (laughs) But again, there are ways in which at either extreme, we end up serving money more than God. What does faithfulness with our money look like? N.T. Wright says it this way, money is not a possession. It is a trust. God entrusts property to people and expects it to be used to his glory and the welfare of his children, not for private glory or glamour. There are true riches which really will belong to us in a way that money doesn't if we learn faithfulness here and now. If we don't, we shall find ourselves torn between two masters. Now, as Jesus is telling this story, he's speaking, we saw all the way back in verse 1, primarily to his disciples. But this is part of a bigger conversation that's been going on over a couple of chapters. And there's this secondary audience as well. As Jesus is telling this story and providing this commentary, the Pharisees, are listening in. And the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. They're these guys who've been coming into conflict with Jesus over a variety of things. And when they hear this, they lose it. They can't take it anymore. They have to say something. This is how verse 14 is translated in the NIV. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Our ESV Bibles say ridiculed. I like sneering. (laughs) Jesus responds to them like this. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This begins to get right to the heart of the gospel. There are many, many ways that we try to justify ourselves. 
The word justify means to prove right. Theologically, it means to declare or make righteous in the sight of God. The Pharisees make a couple of mistakes here. First, they look to money for their self-justification. Their theology, I think, again, very similar to popular theology that a lot of us hold, was this. If I have money, God loves me. I'm blessed. And if I don't, I must have done something wrong and God is mad at me. That's how they thought. And again, I think that's how a lot of us think too. That was the first mistake. The second mistake and the really deeper issue here for the Pharisees is this. They sought to justify themselves in the eyes of other people. Certainly money is an easy way to do that, an easy way to prove that. But we do it in all kinds of different ways, whether it's seeking certain status, appearing to have our life together, rationalizing certain life choices, whatever it is, we look for our justification from everywhere, but from the one place, the one person who can truly make us right. This is a core identity issue. Where do you find your value? Is it in what you do? Is it in what you produce? Is it in the number that is attached to your bank account? Is it in the image that you present? Where do you find your value? All these things are self-justifying dead ends. And here's the thing. Self-justification by definition will never save you. So what does save us? 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We are justified not through anything that we can do, but through Jesus. Through his death and his resurrection. Now back again to our question. What is Jesus really trying to say here? We need to pull back the camera a little bit and look at the bigger scope of what has been going on over the last couple of chapters. Going back to chapter 14, we looked at this passage a couple months ago. Jesus tells a story about the kingdom of God. He says it's like a party and everybody is invited to this party. But those who actually show up to the party are quite surprising, not who you would expect. This then begins to actually happen in real life. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus' party theology becomes reality, and it starts to mess with people. The Pharisees, notice how in 15 they're grumbling, 16 they're sneering. They grumble about this. Jesus, in response to that, what does he do? He tells more stories. And in Luke 15, we get this series of three stories, one about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and then the last one about a lost son, this very famous story called the parable of the prodigal son. And it is right after that, in this context, in this ongoing conversation, that Jesus tells this story that we looked at today about the dishonest Manager, And here's the thing, there's all kinds of connections between the parable of the prodigal son and the dishonest manager. Both the prodigal son and the dishonest manager find themselves in difficult situations of their own making. 
the son, has made a mess out of being a son. If you remember this story, you know that he tells off his dad, asks for his inheritance, goes as far away as he possibly can get from his family, and then just blows it all on dumb stuff. Makes a mess of being a son. The manager makes a mess of being a manager. Both the son and the manager betray a trust. The son of his father, the manager of his master, they both squander what they've been given. This word squandered shows up in both stories. In the Greek, it's the word diaskripidzo, to squander. It has this connotation of just throwing something to the wind. Wasted, blown away. They squander an opportunity. They both realize the situation that they are in is pretty desperate. Prodigal son wakes up in a pig pen, eating pig food. It says, he comes to his senses. He says, I can no longer do this. The manager, again, has this very realistic assessment of his situation. I'm not cut out for manual labor. I do not want to beg. So they both come up with the plan. The son says, I'm going to go home and I'll beg. I'll just ask my dad to be the lowest person on the flow chart, whatever it takes to get back on this property, to get back in his house. The manager says, I'll reduce these bills. I'll fudge the numbers. I'll give these guys a discount so that when I am actually fired and everyone knows about it, I'll have a soft place to land. And then they both experience amazing grace. The son is not banned from his family. He's not shunned by his father. In fact, his father runs to meet him and embraces him and welcomes him home and throws a huge party in his honor. The manager is not thrown in jail, is not killed. These guys do not reap what they sowed. They do not get what they deserved. They are not made right. They are not justified by anything that they do. And here at the end, after getting it wrong so many times, they finally get one thing right, and it's this. They both bet everything on the grace and mercy of the authority over them. The son bets it all on the grace of the father, and the manager bets it all on the grace of his boss. No self-justification in either one of them. They go all in on grace. You see, the manager is shrewd. Not because he buys his friends. He's shrewd because he understands the nature of his boss. And if he's going down, he's going down on the grace of his boss. This is Jesus' invitation to the Pharisees, his invitation to the disciples, his invitation to us as he tells all of these stories. Who are you betting on? Yourself? Your ability to justify and take care of yourself or will you gamble it all? Will you bet it all like the prodigal son, like the shrewd manager on grace? Will you bet it all on grace? So two questions as we close. First, are you stuck trying to justify yourself? It's a dead end, friends. Are you stuck trying to justify yourself and then Second, have you bet it all on grace? The shrewdest move you will ever make is to go all in on the grace and forgiveness extended to us by God through Jesus. So may you go all in 
on his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this odd little story in Luke 16 and for the truth that we do not get what we deserve. That through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, you extend to us this incredible gift, this totally unexpected grace out of love, out of a desire to be with us, to be in relationship with us. So God, may we, like prodigal son, like the shrewd manager, may we bet it all on your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.